At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. It is a gift to be able to be here with you, to bring the Word of God to you. And um, in so many, uh, in times like these, times that are full of so much uh, dysfunction, uh, disunity, uh, where our church must gather together in unity to demonstrate the love of Christ, remember the world knows us by our love for one another. And so when we represent reconciliation in our own relationships and with one another, that's when we can best demonstrate the truth of our message to a desperate world. And uh, there's so much desperation right now. And so as we interact with those in our communities and our neighborhoods who might believe differently than us, uh, certainly we hold on to truth, but we also hold on to grace. And we demonstrate both to a world that needs to see them. And we can see that with one another as well. So uh, just thankful to be on this journey with you. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Genesis chapter 26. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit as we walk through the life of Jacob uh, specifically this morning, but we'll eventually settle in Genesis 26. So please turn there with me if you would. We're continuing our series, Family, Why Bother?, And we've been looking back at the biographies of the first families mentioned in scripture so that we could see how their brokenness can help us by God's grace to lead our families to breakthrough, where their hurt can help us by God's grace to bring us to this place of healing. Uh, The human story begins, of course, with one couple, which means that we all share a common ancestry. So you could pay your 99 bucks at Ancestry.com. You could try to figure it all out uh, to see where your not-so-distant relatives came from, various parts of Europe or Africa or Asia or the Americas. But friends, uh, spoiler alert, we all come from the same place. That's what the scriptures reveal to us in the opening pages. And I don't know about you, but as we've walked through this series, the truth is I don't really want to be associated with these people. When you, when you look at their stories and their families and their relationships, I don't want to be associated with them. I think calling some of them, not all of them, but some of them are called the heroes of the faith. I think that's a very misleading title because they weren't really heroes at all. Adam and Eve ruined it for everybody. Their firstborn son murdered their secondborn son. Noah survived catastrophe only to become a drunk. His son Ham despised and disrespected his father to the point of being cursed by God. His son Canaan became the mortal enemy of his own cousins. Abram, before he was called Abraham, treats his wife Sarai like a commodity available to the highest bidder and puts his safety above hers, his spouse, his love. Isaac was so full of favoritism and prejudice and preferentialism that it tore his family apart. And so now we come to Isaac and Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is mentioned first, even though he's not born first, which is part of the irony of the whole story and certainly part of what's happening within the text. A couple observations as we get into this this morning. If you are a skeptic when it comes to the reliability of the Bible, 
Please recognize how unusual and abnormal it would be for a people group to present all of their major historical characters in such a negative light. This is not normative. Their victories and triumphs don't always take center stage. Reading the stories doesn't promote ethnic pride. Instead, it's embarrassing. It's, It's nauseating. It's awful. And so this doesn't bring some kind of Jewish nationalism or Jewish pomp. When we read their stories, we see that their hearts and their motives and their depravity, all of that gets exposed, not covered up. This reality really of the text gives us great confidence that the testimony is credible. Sure, they have good moments, but the big picture is so obnoxiously awful. It's just obnoxiously awful that none of us would ever really want to be associated with any of them. I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be exposed as so self-centered or self-righteous or self-admiring or self-preserving or self-protecting or self-deceived. I don't want to be associated with these dysfunctional people. I I get tired of being associated with people that I don't really have things in common with. How about you? It's like being associated with a Lions organization. I mean, it's just so much dysfunction. It's so sad to me. I lived half my life here in Detroit, and the first half of my life I lived in Akron, so the other organization was Cleveland. They're even worse. So I don't want to be associated with these dysfunctional people, but... That's kind of the point, is that we are associated with them because we are them. We see our own folly and their ridiculous foolishness. We might make it sound more civilized, but it's the same sin. Now, we all know what it's like in this polarizing culture to be associated with a person or a party or a position or a policy, or a politician, or a president, maybe even a pastor that you don't want to be associated with. We get labeled and sorted into tribes before we even finish a sentence. And most of the time, I don't want the association. Most of the time, I don't want to be associated with the them, whoever the them really is. I don't want to be associated with people who might look at me and say, supremacist, or racist, or misogynist, or misandrist, whatever the label is that our culture wants to put on us. Even when the them is an evangelical Christian, the associations that people make with evangelicals and Christians aren't always the associations I want imposed upon me because they're often not consistent with the scripture itself. The truth is the only association right now that seems safe within our framework and faith, is I really just want to be associated with Jesus Christ. Because he's the ultimate hero of the story who reconciles us with God the Father and guarantees that reconciliation through the presence of his spirit. So the real question for me is not who am I being associated with, but why is it that Jesus associates himself with me? Why not flip it around? The minute he brings me into his family is the minute his family gets more dysfunctional. Maybe you're a little different. But here we find one of the most shocking attributes about the nature of God, and this all ties back to the story that we find ourselves in in the book of Genesis here in a few moments. In chapter 32, let me just bounce around for a moment. Jacob, the son of Isaac, he wrestles with God. It's an interesting passage. We're not gonna spend time on it this morning to unpack all the details 
But God has been pursuing his heart for decades with a simple question. It's the question that he asks every human being, and that is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you follow my way instead of the way of manipulation? And Jacob walks away from that battle with the Lord, and ultimately he's given a new life, a new name, and do you know what else he walks away with that battle with? A limp. The great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, asked his congregation, how do you know you have met with God? You limp. When you find God, humility finds you too. You don't walk with your chest out so far. Your independent life built on your own way dies and your dependent life built on the way of Jesus is born. The limp, the spiritual limp that we have is a gracious reminder that we are helpless. We've come to the place of understanding that we are helpless without the help of God. That's why we limp. So when Jacob finally gets it, he's given this new name. In chapter 32, verse 28, it says, Then he, God, said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, who do you think God associates himself with? Why would Jesus associate himself with us? Why would God associate himself with us? Who does God associate himself with? You would expect that God would associate himself with this new name of Jacob, with Israel. With Israel, because that name, Israel, means triumphant with God. God in all of his perfection and holiness. Uh, The fact that he is set apart, that he is transcendent, but also imminent. The fact that he is so beyond our comprehension that we can never fathom his glory, the weight of his glory. Wouldn't he want to associate himself, his sinless, perfect self, eternal, infinite, beyond comprehension with the name Israel? He'd be the God of Israel instead of the God of Jacob, which means supplanter or deceiver. But what do we find in the story? Well, this is one of 12 times or so. This is how Moses writes it. It shows up about 12 times within the word of God. And God says to Moses, this is when Moses is interacting with God about to be sent back to Egypt to rescue God's people from the Egyptian slavery. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The shocking attribute of God is that throughout the Bible, God associates himself with dysfunctional people. He didn't wait for his name to be changed. He said, I'm the God of Jacob. Not when he was all cleaned up, not after he'd wrestled and come to some good conclusions, but even before that, in his deception, in his sin, in his frailty, in his depravity, he says, I am that man's God. He's not afraid of associating himself with people like you and me, and that makes him so unlike you and me. God is willing to be your God even when your life is not put together, even when you are covered with depravity. He wants you right now just as you are. And he will wrestle with you and shape you and mold you and even wound you 
into a new life and identity in Christ, which is for your good and ultimately brings about a more fulfilling life that has purpose to it for his glory. In the New Testament, Paul puts it this way. In Romans 5, I'll read more of this passage later this morning, but he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He associated himself with the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the God of Jacob's. All of this shows us that God's grace prevails over our dysfunction. And that includes our family dysfunction. God's grace prevails over our family dysfunction. Jacob's life is a microcosm of that story. Yours can be too through faith. If we wanna see how God overcomes the dysfunction of our lives and our families, it's good for us to go back and see where the problem started. And we've already seen it show up in Genesis 3 and then cycle in every generation since. It starts with this simple word, disobedience. Obey is a word that doesn't roll off the tongue very well. We don't like it. We certainly don't like it as adults in this culture. No way at all. It it sounds restrictive. It feels childish. But it all goes back to that Genesis 3 question. Will you fully trust the word of God? And ever since the very beginning... When we disobey, that's when we don't follow or trust the word of God. And disobedience leads to family dysfunction. It leads to destruction, uh, both personally and relationally. That's our first point this morning, that disobedience leads to family dysfunction. That's what we see in the life of Isaac, his wife Rebecca, and their children, Esau and Jacob. We get a hint at that things aren't right, right from the beginning in Genesis 26. That's where we pick it up. And we'll again scoot forward through several various verses. It says this in verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Berai, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau disobeys the command of God, the word of God, and he marries multiple wives, not a good idea, from a tribe that is outside of his ancestral family. The result is, of course, trouble. These verses introduce issues in the family, but the next verses bring the conflicts front and center. So chapter 27, verse one. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, this is irony happening in the text. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, at first glance, if you know much about the Bible, you know this was very commonplace in ancient cultures, that the patriarch of the family would bless typically the firstborn son within the family, And that that blessing carried weight. It carried generational weight to it. And so here, you're thinking, okay, he's just following the same pattern. But we need to keep in mind that God had given a very specific prophecy over Jacob and Esau before they were even born. And God gave this prophecy specifically to Isaac's wife, Rebekah. And so listen to what happens in 25 verse 21. So I'll go back a couple chapters. You don't need to turn there. 
We'll put it up on the screen and it says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So she goes to the Lord in prayer asking what's going on. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger. So God said the younger would rule over the older and the younger would receive the family blessing. This is something that Rebecca receives from God. She communicates it to her husband. He doesn't listen. Not the first time that that's happened in history. But Isaac then decides that he doesn't agree with God's word. He doesn't agree with his spouse. So he refuses to bless either one of them. Typically, you don't wait until death for the blessing because you're not sure when that might come. So then he goes a step further and chooses to bless Esau in his old age in direct disobedience to God's word. So it starts with Isaac's disobedience. Then it moves to Rebekah's deception. If you know the story, Rebekah responds to Isaac's plan with a plan of her own. She gets Jacob and she says, I want you to impersonate your brother Esau and I want you to sneak into your father's quarters and receive Esau's blessing. It's intended for him. God meant it for you. So let's deceive to bringing this thing about. And that's exactly what happens. So Jacob goes in, pretends to be Esau, puts on some weird hair on his arms, you know, um, gets smelly, doesn't wear deodorant, all the rest of it. And the father, uh, the father Isaac blesses him. It's, it's an irony because Isaac is blind to God's plan for both of his sons. And he's blind physically. Esau comes back and discovers the deception. And then what does he receive? Well, there is no more blessing to be given uh, that was in accordance with this promise. And so he receives an anti-blessing from Isaac and then puts his own plans in place to wait for his father to die and then to murder his brother. Well, the result is that Rebecca sends Jacob off to her brother Laban to save his life and she never sees her son again. The disobedience started with Isaac and works its way through the entire family. The story is told in a very particular way because you'll notice if you've read this story before or even if you read it again, if you haven't studied this part of scripture or read the story, read the scripture, read through it. And what you'll notice is the family's never together. They're always having these little sidebar conversations. Gonna sneak over here and mom's gonna talk with with Jacob and then over here, dad's gonna sneak off and talk with Esau. And you know, of course, Rebecca and Isaac are at it. Has that ever happened today? Side conversations, secret conversations, some scheming, some plotting, some conspiring, some deceiving, some hurting, some hating. I often tell my children, your actions are not isolated events. Everything you do impacts this whole family. Actions, friends, are communal. Our culture says they're not. Our culture says you can do what you want and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's fine. The problem with that, the deception in that is that all actions are communal because we're communal people. The things that we do impact those in our lives. 
This is the lie of our culture. It's the lie of a secular age. It says that we live in an age then of extreme autonomy and autonomy is our authority. In other words, I'm my own, I'm my own boss. I make my own morality. I am my own authority. Our culture, the secular culture, pushes private spiritual growth. And the pandemic's only made that even more. Where it's just like, you know what? I can grow on my own. I don't need you because people, let's be frank, they're messy. It's trouble. There's issue. I don't want the drama. I just want to be with myself. It's just me and God. It's just God and me. I don't need anyone else. The problem is that's not how he made us. If it was just us and God, then the church is not necessary. And yet Jesus came to die for the church. Community is the soil in which we grow. And so this lie of self-revelation, it gets prioritized over divine revelation. What I come to in my own mind, that is prioritized over what God's word says to me. So I'll go with this truth and then I'll displace the real truth. That's called deception. The result on a societal level in this kind of post-pandemic phase, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health has written about this extensively in the last year or two. Anxiety, of course, has exponentially grown. Depression, exponentially grown. More than half public health workers have reported mental health issues. Suicide rates, exponentially grown. Domestic violence grew. When trouble comes, when trial comes, when temptation comes, our natural movement is always towards self-isolation and self-protection. But when you move towards self-isolation and self-protection, it always ends in self-destruction. That's what happens. And so that whole thing, when trouble comes, run, that actually is the lie of the enemy that will hurt you. He, he wants to get you alone. He wants you not to hear the truth of others. He wants you not to experience the community of others. He doesn't want you to have the encouragement of others. He doesn't want you to be equipped for the work of the ministry. He doesn't want others to spur you on towards loving good deeds. He doesn't want somebody to call you on the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus because then you might actually look more like Jesus. So of course it's easier just to say, man, I don't want to press in. This is our world. Community is the soil in which we grow. Spiritual family matters. One of my favorite books and quotations from that book is called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've used this quote so many times. Maybe you've heard me even share it here. He was martyred for being part of a failed assassination plot against Adolf Hitler in the Second World War. And throughout his life, when you read his biography, he really only had a few seasons of life where he was able to spend it with Christian brothers and sisters because there was just so much turmoil. And from his perspective, here's what he writes. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. In other words, we take it for granted. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of the Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. 
that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. This is a gift of grace, this thing called spiritual family. Don't ever take it for granted and don't ever call it the enemy. Of course it's messy because we're all dysfunctional. (laughs) Praise God that we have a high priest that's not. But in the meantime, we are still one another's support, help, and it it is through this fellowship that the world will know he is Christ. So if you think, no, 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 my purpose, my mission, my fulfillment will come when I live out my Christianity within my own nuclear family and no one else. That, that again is maybe why the church so often seems so powerless. Because the church has always been meant from the very first day until now to function communally and therein lies our power. When we live out this reality in a world that says that doesn't make sense to me. Our disobedience leads to dysfunction. Here's the thing, within the community of this family, if Isaac chose to talk it through with Rebecca, talk it through with Esau, talk it over with Jacob, together leaning on God's promises, the outcome still would have been the same because God had already prophesied what was gonna happen. When he says it, it does occur, but the story would have read completely different. They wouldn't have had to deal with so much of that dysfunction and the outcomes that it produces. So choosing to run into Christian community, into a life group is where we can untangle all that self-deception. We find some hope as the story moves along because we see how God works through all of this chaos. And this is what God does throughout his word. There's all this dysfunction. There's all this self-destruction. There's all this chaos. But all that does ultimately is shine a greater light on God's grace. God's grace shines through family dysfunction. Listen to what Isaac says to Jacob next. So scoot over to chapter 28. We'll pick it up in verse three. Chapter 28, verse three, it says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he, be, uh, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away. In the middle of all their carnage, God's sovereign plan keeps moving forward. So the, God's original command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, it's still intact. God's covenant with Abraham, it's still intact. Now the covenant that God made with Abraham, it's called an unconditional covenant. That's contrasted with a conditional covenant. Unconditional covenants within the Bible means there are no conditions. It means when God makes that type of unconditional covenant with Abraham to bless him, to make, uh, to make many nations through, through his family lineage, to give him land, these are things that God will do regardless of what Abraham does or does not do because ultimately the promise lands on God's character, not Abraham's obedience. That's an unconditional covenant. Not every covenant or promise in the Bible is unconditional. This one is. And so the point is that all of their crazy 
just demonstrates the craziness of God's invincible grace. I mean, they keep trying to sidetrack the whole deal, but it's not getting sidetracked. Now, the point isn't, and our takeaway, our application is not that disobedience doesn't matter. It does matter. Look at all the carnage and destruction. We don't want to experience that ourselves. And many of us, most of us probably already have to a degree. What this demonstrates is that our salvation, God's salvation of his people here, our salvation ultimately through Christ, rests on God's grace and mercy not on our obedience. It's not our work. It's not our obedience. It's the perfect obedience of the Son. And because of the perfect obedience of the Son, all the conditions of the covenants have been met in Christ and then are attributed to you through faith. That's the gospel. That you are saved through the perfect obedience of the Son from your disobedience. And you are given reconciliation with God the Father through Christ, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Philip Yancey wrote about becoming honest with our own disobedience in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. It's a great book. He says, as a child, I put on my best behavior on Sunday mornings, dressing up for God and the Christians around me. My kids are so proud of me because I, I, I put on a pair of Jordans today and I don't even know what that all means, but they, they said that, that when we put on these clothes, I, I try to tell them, you know, guys, um, God doesn't really care. <laughs> but yeah, let's try to offer him our best this morning. But Philip Yancey grew up in that kind of house. Everybody had to look just perfect, dress up and act perfect, put on perfect smiles. And he says, it never occurred to me that church was a place to be honest. Now, though, as I seek to look at the world through the lens of grace, I realize that imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. Imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. In other words, if you don't understand your need, you can never understand grace. He says light, grace, only gets in through the cracks. It's only when you recognize your need can God actually come in and meet your need. When we acknowledge the darkness of our sin, when we actually confront it, when we don't hide it, run from it, bury it, ignore it, stick up our pride and say it never happened, never existed, self-deception, all those types of things, but when we actually say, this is ultimately who I am exposed before a holy God, that is when you feel the grace of God most acutely. That is when you experience it. It's time then, friends, to embrace a path of honesty, first with God, perhaps with your spouse or trusted friend. Even just a small step towards honesty about our family dysfunction can begin to invite us to experience God's grace. It only shines through family dysfunction. God's grace, I'm sorry, God's grace not only shines through family dysfunction, his grace also creates a context for healing and reconciliation. And that's where we land in this story this morning. Here's the last part. If you'd flip over to Genesis 33 now, just one chapter further. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. It's been 15 years since Jacob last saw Esau. The last time he saw him, he was running from him, 
hiding, going away, thinking that his brother was going to kill him. And, and he was probably right in that assessment because, remember, he was like a chef. He knew how to cook. His brother, we already read it, like knows how to handle a quiver and a bow. Who's going to win? And so now, after all this time, there's been all of this buildup, all of these years in between, he now has all of these possessions, he has a family, he has children, and now he's commanded by God to go back to his family. Would you do it? There's people in my family, they didn't speak for five years. Five years. When one of my relatives passed away, they had a disagreement about the estate which wasn't even that much. They fought over it and it broke down relationship for five years. This was 15 and they hadn't spoken or even seen one another. There was no text, email or anything else. There was no even knowing if the person was alive. Jacob comes back to his homeland and when he's coming back, he sees Esau was coming with four hundred men. Maybe you've heard the expression, you and what army? What's going to happen to him? Well, verse one, the back half of it. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Favoritism carried on, didn't it? Then Leah with her children, second best, and Rachel and Joseph last of all generational sin still being exposed. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground, so at least he had the courage to go out front seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the woman and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down and last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met, all these gifts that he had sent prior to this moment? Why did you send me all these things, Jacob? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And what we see here is God's grace can reconcile family dysfunction. Esau doesn't kill him. (laughs) He embraces him. We're left wondering what happened to make Esau have such a change of heart. But Jacob says something next. It's very powerful. Pay attention to the language. Look at verse 10. Jacob said, no, please, if if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my, what's the word? Blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Jacob uses the word blessing. So in this moment, understand what's happening here culturally. He acknowledges his sin and offers it back. I took it. I took it through deception. I'm giving it away. Esau, even though it was Jacob's, even though his mom had told him his whole life that this is God's plan for you to receive this blessing, he did receive it, but not the way God intended. He manipulated. God it his own way. And then he comes to his brother, knowing that he has wronged him, and he said, I want you to receive blessing. 
He's basically acknowledging his wrong. And Esau at first says, no, thank you, which basically means it's not forgiven. But then he changes his mind. He receives it. It's a symbolic gesture that means I forgive you and we are now reconciled. Do you want to know how reconciliation happens? It's actually very simple. Here's how reconciliation happens. God's grace gets extended and God's grace gets received. That's reconciliation. It's the extension of God's grace. It's the reception of God's grace. It's the extension of God's grace. It's the reception of God's grace. The flow of this story moves from the lesser to the greater and the greatest blessing of the entire passage was not all the possessions and all the things. It was this moment of reconciliation. Let me read the rest of Romans 5 when we know the rest of the story in Christ. But God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the greatest example of God's grace, God's extension of his grace, it's all found in the hero of the story. It's found in Jesus who offers forgiveness and new life and a new name and a new identity through faith. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob's, like you and like me. He doesn't want you all polished and cleaned up. That's something that only happens by his grace after you've received, received it. God has extended his grace through Christ. The question is really whether or not you've received it. He's extended it. Have you received it? If you have not received it, you still stand condemned. You stand under the wrath of God, separated from him, unreconciled. That offer is to you, that is salvation. If you have received it by faith, then what does God command us to do? If he's extended his grace and we've received his grace, he asks us to extend it to one another. That's what our world needs to see, don't you think? Reconciliation. Is there anything more that our culture needs right now than reconciliation. And how are they going to know how to reconcile when the followers of Jesus can't reconcile their marriages and with their kids whom they love and in their families who they've shut their communication off from? Friends, this is the challenge of the text for you and there is hope for you and there is grace for you, but you have to have the courage to take the step. And maybe as we close today, you're thinking, but you don't know how hard it's been. I can just say, I haven't walked your path. I haven't walked your journey. We all have our stories, but do you think our stories surpass the difficulty and the dysfunction of these? God's grace is sufficient for you. Dwight L. Moody said it this way, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough today to last him for the next six months. Nor can he inhale sufficient air into his lungs with one breath to sustain life for a week to come. We are permitted to draw upon God's store of grace from day to day as 
We need it. Here's the point. Right now, you have God's extended grace for you and you have all that you need of it for today. Just today. So the question is, what will you do with it? What will you do with it? Father, we want to be people of reconciliation. We need to be people that carry out this ministry of reconciliation. That's the very command that you gave us in Christ, that we have received salvation, every eternal blessing in the heavenlies through Christ Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that if there be any who are watching online today or who are here with us in the room today, and they, they know that at this moment in time they stand unreconciled to you, that you would give them through the prodding of your Holy Spirit the courage to pray, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Reconcile me with God, my creator. Forgive me for all of my self-deception. Give me a new name, a new identity, a new life in you. I place my faith in you. I place my trust in you as my Lord and my Savior. Use it for your glory. I know it's for my good. And Father, for every person who has prayed that, either this day or before, Father, we have not just received your grace, now we've been called to extend it to maybe the people sitting right next to us. Maybe the people that are in our contacts list. I, I don't know, Father, there's so many opportunities, there's so many places. But give us the courage to extend your grace and when it's extended our way, help us to have the ability to also forgive one another. Maybe the extension is just to say, I'm sorry. Or I forgive you. Maybe to receive it is to say, I'm sorry too. Father, restore broken marriages. Isolation is the enemy. Father, help them come back together in Christ. Father, restore broken relationships with children, with friends, with family. Father, help us to demonstrate in this world of chaos, what it means to love one another and to be known by the love of Christ. You have been so eternally good to us. And so Father, we wanna demonstrate that good to one another and leave out of this place free, lighter, without the weight of all of that guilt and shame and sin and, and all of the weight of that dysfunction freed in Christ. So Father, we will praise you for the work that you're doing and the work that you will do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.